millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He ko nai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kiora, hello, and a very big welcome to Elemental, a podcast from RNZ. We are all over the periodic table as we mark its 150th birthday alphabetically. I'm Alison Balance, a science producer from RNZ, and along as our expert guide is, ta-da! <laughs> Me! <laughs> I'm Alan Blackman, I'm from the Auckland University of Technology, and we are up to episode 37, which means Indium. Ah, yes. Good old Indium, eh? <laughs> Actually, that's a lie. <laughs> I've never heard of it. <laughs> yes, possibly you're not alone in that one, Alison. You might not have heard of it, but you'll certainly be familiar with it because we could call Indium perhaps the queen of touchscreens. So if you've got a smartphone or a tablet... There's lots of indium in those, and yeah, we will learn more about that as this goes on. Ooh, the queen of the touchscreen. I'm liking it already as a chemical element. Tell me more. <laughs> okay, as usual, the vital statistics. So, chemical symbol IN, atomic number 49, group 13, so it's sort of right in the middle-ish of the periodic table. Gallium's above it, thallium is below, and to the left and the right are respectively cadmium and tin. Now, it was discovered in 1863, and it was named indium uh, from the Latin word indicium, and that means violet or indigo. And the reason that it was called that is due to its discovery, which is quite an interesting little story in itself. So it was actually discovered by a colorblind physics professor whose name was Ferdinand Reich. And he was using a spectroscope, which is a device which allows you to look at the light emitted uh, by atoms as they're heated to very, very high temperature. And they give out all sorts of uh, lovely colours. Now, being colourblind obviously isn't going to be too great when you're trying to look at uh, coloured lines in a spectroscope. He was looking at a sample of zinc sulphide, which is now called sphalerite. And this was obviously impure because it had some indium in it. And uh, so he went to his chemistry colleague, the wonderfully named Hieronymus Richter, uh, and asked him to have a look. He wasn't colorblind. And so Hieronymus was the first person to see a brilliant indigo line that provided the evidence of a new element and hence where it's got its name from. Both Reich and Richter published a joint paper announcing the discovery, but sadly Richter went all academic, I guess, and sort of laid claim to the discovery on his own. So uh, things were a bit frosty between them from then on. I have to say that sounds a bit rude of Richter. Indeed. I do like the irony of a colourblind professor trying to find something using colour. That's great. And in passing, I'd just like to say I really think we should reintroduce Hieronymus as a name. It's very good. It is. It is a great name. Yes, yes. Now, indium, it's a metal? It is. It is what some people, not myself, mind you, call a post-transition metal. It's not really an official designation. 
And these are the metals that uh, occur to the right of the transition metals, okay? And so that basically puts them between the transition metals to their left and the metalloids on their right. So pure indium metal has got a fabulous silver luster and it's very, very soft. So you can actually uh, cut it with a knife. You can sort of imprint your fingernail in it. So it is a very, very soft metal. And interesting, it's one of the few metals that can wet glass. Hold on, what do you mean by wet glass? <laughs> well, wetting is the ability of a liquid to maintain contact with a solid surface. And so basically, essentially, it sort of sticks to the solid surface. This arises from intermolecular interactions when the two are brought together. And so this makes it good for a couple of things, certainly mirrors. Okay, so it sticks very, very well to glass. And because it's got that lovely silver luster, it makes excellent mirrors and it doesn't corrode like silver does. And also gaskets as well. You want something to stick really, really well to a solid surface and use indium to do that. Silvering mirrors sounds like a very narrow market for something. Does it have any other uses? <laughs> well, really, since its discovery, sort of way back in the 1860s, <laughs> there weren't really any uses. It was a pretty boring metal, I guess. And then World War II came along, and as often happens in times of war, uh, uses are found for things that previously had no use. And they found that uh, very thin films of indium were good at lubricating aircraft engine bearings. So that was pretty much it. And then, all of a sudden, indium hit the big time in the past couple of decades. Because of the discovery of the semiconductor indium tin oxide, otherwise known as ITO. And when that happened, indium really became absolutely indispensable to our modern-day world. So what's ITO and why is it so important? So ITO is what we call tin-doped indium oxide. It's basically indium oxide with anything up to around about 10% or so by weight of tin in it. And that's what we call doping, and we've talked about that in, in earlier episodes. Uh, if you go over the 10% by weight, you end up with uh, something that doesn't have the wonderful properties uh, that ITO does. And the special properties that ITO has are... Number one, it conducts electricity, and that's kind of thanks to the tin in there. And it's also transparent to visible light. And this allows it to be used in things like, for example, electronic displays. So we think of those as being constructed of individual pixels. And ITO is able to deliver signals to individual pixels because it can conduct electricity, but it doesn't block the light from the other pixels. And that's what makes it so very, very useful uh, in anything that's got a display. So your touchscreens, your mobile phones, your liquid crystal displays, all of those sorts of things. This is brilliant. I've always wondered how my touchscreen on my phone manages to know what I'm pointing at. So how does it work? <laughs> oh, grief. Okay. Um, this, is, this is more a question of physics and engineering. I'll go and give it a go. Okay. There are two types of touchscreen. So one's called resistive and the other is capacitive. And smartphones use capacitive touchscreens and they are electrical in nature. Capacitive comes from capacitor, and those of you who have done first-year physics will know that a capacitor is a device that can store electricity. So, look on your smartphone, you've got this lovely, tough glass screen. Now, the trouble with glass, obviously, is that it's an insulator, and so therefore it doesn't conduct electricity. So, in order for the touchscreen to work, we've got to have something conductive on the glass. And so what we use is a very, very, very thin transparent layer of 
ITO generally. Uh, there are other things used as well. But again, ITO is conductive, and the way that they lay it out is in crisscrossing thin strips, and that forms a grid pattern on the surface of your device, which you actually can't see. <laughs> so what happens then? So you touch the ITO layer on the screen, and if you're touching it with anything that can carry an electrical charge, like, for example, your finger or anything like that, then what happens is you interrupt the flow of current, and then there's another set of wires running perpendicular to the conductive ones. They sense the disruption. They send the feedback back to the device to let it know whereabouts on the screen you're touching. And that's basically it. ITO touchscreen. So they don't deform. They're not the deforming type of touchscreen. So that allows them to actually sense multiple points of contact. So you can not only use one finger, you can use two or however many you want. And so that's what has given rise over the past, I guess, decade or so to the pinching and swiping and all of that sort of stuff that we are now so familiar with. So that is one form of indium used in uh, touchscreens. So there's a different form of indium that is used in solar panels, and that's a semiconductor copper indium gallium selenide, otherwise known as CIGS. I've been trying to wonder how you'd pronounce those Abbreviation, so ITO for Indian tin oxide, maybe. They always call it ITO, so oh. that, that much I know. Okay, I won't get that familiar <laughs> with it then. Where do we actually get indium from? Okay, so I talked about the discovery of it when Mr. Reich was uh, studying zinc sulfide, or sphalerite as it was called. So that's where we do get it from now. So it seems to co-occur especially with zinc ores in the presence of sulfur, so sulfitic zinc ores. And it was a reasonably, as I said, boring element before, but now it's so, so very important that the U.S. Department of Energy recently gave it a critical rating in terms of supply depletion. And in fact, it's estimated that our needs for it, our growing needs for it, in fact, can only be accommodated until 2020, which is next year, folks. <gasps> I know, but, but all is not lost because apparently the way of the future is flexible screens. So we'll be doing away with these big clunky smartphone type things and we'll have things that you can roll up and put in your pocket because they'll be based on OLEDs and they will be replacing the LCDs that we currently use and so perhaps indium might not be so important in the future. Oh, it's been rather important for a the last few years, though. Hey, oh, yes. my favourite part of the podcast. Tell me something <laughs> interesting about indium. Okay, so this is something I've always wanted to try, but have never been able to lay my hands on enough indium to do it. So <laughs> it's always written in books that the metal emits a high-pitched cry when you bend it. A cry. And I've, in, in my head, got an idea of what a cry sounds like. Ah. Um, exactly. <laughs> and this is not unique to indium. Its neighbour Tin also does this. Uh, if you look on YouTube for Indium Cry, you'll get at very best some sort of crackling, which to me is not a cry. But Okay, um, I'm just going to interrupt there for a second because our listeners don't need to go to YouTube. So uh, calling <laughs> Phil in the control room, could you please play the piece of audio? There you go. There's See, that, that uh, crackling. That, that is not a cry. Come on. <laughs> no, it's not. Why, why, why does it make that sound? That's actually tin, by the way, of course, not indium. Why does it make that sound? Oh, 
it's something to do with the crystals rearranging in the solid as you deform it, but I don't think we've got time to go into that, thank goodness. Oh, what a shame. Anyway, <laughs> screaming indium or crackling indium, I'll remember that next time I'm swiping and pinching on my touchscreen. Thanks, indium. Elemental is a podcast from RNZ, and you can find us at rnz.co.nz slash chemistry. And while you're there, why not check out some of RNZ's other podcast offerings? Just click the podcasts and series tab at the top of the page. We are, of course, available as a podcast on your swipeable device of choice. Thanks, Indium. Subscribe for free if you haven't already. And if you've missed any of the previous 36 episodes, you'll find them as well. Next time, we are back with iodine. But until then, it's goodbye from me, Alan Blackman. And me, Alison Balance. Namihi. Thank <laughs> you.